It's Groundhog Week. <laughs> yeah, how many times can you use that gag? Hi and welcome to episode 29 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And as ever, I'm joined by a film geek, my friend, buddy and man at arms, Andy Meakin. How are we doing, Andy? I've not got, I've not got many arms. Well, I've got two arms, but I've not got arms as in arms. But yeah, I'm good. Um, I've, had a, I've had a curious week. I've, I'm getting back into the routine of watching a lot of films. Oh, that's good. To say we do a film podcast every week, I think that's perfect. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had those few weeks that I was doing like 14 to 18 films per week, but then I suddenly dropped down to doing like five. Uh, well, I'm back up to revisiting things, uh, going back through back catalogues of things that I've watched and then picking up things that I've not watched. So I'm building it back up again. And this week, this week, I've been um, delving back and re-watching the Star Wars films. Oh, really? You see, I, I went back and watched New Hope with my kid who'd never seen it and, and he enjoyed it, but he wasn't. He wasn't enamoured. He wasn't blown away in the way that I was blown away. Maybe he's still a little bit young, but he, he did love The Mandalorian, and he's probably more into The Mandalorian than, than Star Wars right now. But it was interesting going back. I mean, I was expecting to see it through grown-up eyes uh, and, and wondering if it was going to be clunky or not, but actually it turns out that it wasn't, and I let it just flow over me, and, and I enjoyed it in a way. Interestingly, knowing every beat and every, every line off by heart, it didn't take anything away from enjoying it. Well, you often see like people question, like you know, hey, I've never seen the Star Wars films. What order should I see them in? Release date order or series chronological order? And so this time for my rewatch, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go series chronology, and I'm going to start okay. with Phantom Menace and work forwards. And I've not got to New Hope yet. I'm ready to start New Hope. And all I've got to say is that if it wasn't for the fact that I knew that the film series gets better from this point. I'd have given up by now. Really? Yeah, Phantom Menace is worse than I remembered. <laughs> just say I've never revisited it. Attack of the Clones is marginally better, but not great. Revenge of the Sith is an absolute mess. And then the, the, the Rogue One and Solo films that loads of people rave about these days as being some of the best of new ones. From a narrative point of view, if you've not seen A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, they have no relevance to you. Yeah, absolutely. They are ham-fistedly filled with references and nods for things that haven't happened by that point, just to make the fans go, oh, that's that bit, oh, that's referencing that. So if I'd never seen Star Wars before, I'd have got to this point and just gone, I'm out. I don't know what's going on. This is self-indulgent nonsense. Self -indulgent nonsense. They are not good films. I mean, I wasn't enamoured with them when they came out because I could see past all the nostalgia aspects. I mean, that, you know how I feel about nostalgia getting shoehorned into films and ruining it. Ready, <laughs> oh, well, ready oh we, do. One. we do. And these are perfect examples of how dwelling on nostalgic aspects for the fan base ruins a film. Yeah, I'd, I'd have been at If I didn't know that A New Hope should be a good, good revisit and Empire Strikes Back, it will definitely be a good revisit, I'd have stopped and I'd have moved on to something better like Star Trek, which at least... No matter what order you watch them in, every other film is good. Yes. <laughs> you'll have a bad film and go, oh, do I continue? And then you'll start watching the next one and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm back in. I've not revisited Phantom Menace uh, and the first three of the, the trilogy. Uh, I saw them the first time. I agree with you. I think they got marginally better as they went on. I almost think that um, Revenge of the Sith should have been the first film because that was the more, most interesting plot-wise of any of them 
I didn't care. That was the hardest part about it. I just didn't yeah. care for the characters and their plight. To some extent, knowing what the what the end result was going to be, it, it, it marginalizes it. And I've got to say this for Rogue One, for a, a world where you knew what the end scene was going to be to an extent, there was enough surprises in it uh, and, and characters to, to be intrigued by and interested in to carry it through and to stand alone. Yeah, of course, it's full of fan service. And, and I don't think you could have made Rogue One without the fan service. But I do think that it's a, it's a stronger film than any of the three uh, of the of the first part of the trilogy. Absolutely. The, the problem with Rogue One, I, I think it could have done without the fan, fan service. Because I think what weakens that film for me is the forcible insertion of things from later films. Having Tarkin in there takes away from Krennic as like a great villain. Throwing Vader in there takes away from everyone else and makes him the centre of attention and throws in like that, like, try not to choke on your aspirations. Oh, you're such a wisecracker, Vader. Yeah. That forced references that actually weaken the characters that were created just for that film. And you could see that the studio pressure to put them in. And, you know, there's rumors and speculation talk about how it was like kind of edited behind scenes and he was forced to do this and forced to do that. And I would love to see, you know, the actual Edwards cut. No, we can't release another cut. I'm sorry. I think we're up to our, <laughs> up to our limit on release the cut because I'm still pushing for the release of Roger Corman Fantastic Four cut. Uh, I'm still pushing for them. David Lynch's Dune cut, but I think there's only there's only me pushing for that one. <laughs> oh no, I'm with you with the Fantastic Four one after watching that documentary. So anything else? Anything else been happening in your world? I'm continuing with me revisit of Mash, which uh, we'll get to later. I'm also started watching a show that I'd never watched before, thanks to the recommendation, which we'll get to later. All oh, right. Well, so in this show, we're going to be giving you all the news uh, from around the interweb that Andy will have hunted down like a, a master, well, hunter, really. Andy will be giving me his view of In The Loop, which was uh, Andy's challenge for this week. And we'll be doing a deep dive into the 1970s uh, black comedy and, and game changer of a film, as far as I'm concerned, MASH. But as ever, Andy, bring us the news. So, it's Groundhog Week. <laughs> <laughs> when will this gag ever grow tired? Probably, probably already has. So, with regards to the corona news, Californian cinemas have now been ordered to be closed. So that takes a whole, whole other chunk of America off the table. Which, as you can imagine, now means that Tenet is looking speculatively going to be moving again. I've got to say one thing for Tenet, if anything else. It's given us something to talk about. Every week for the last four <laughs> well, months now. Nolan confirmed over this past week that, once again, he's not even considering doing a split release internationally and then America later. It has to be all or nothing. And it, it's looking more and more unlikely to stick the August, August the 12th days, especially now that China have now, as they're starting to open some cinemas in the low-risk areas, have pointed out that Tenet is too long for them. Okay, I didn't know that one. The Chinese cinemas are implementing a rule that film shows have to be two hours or less in order to reduce contact time with other people. And Tenet has come in at just under two hours 30, which is, makes it one of Nolan's shortest films. But China have gone, well, we're not showing it then, which that has thrown a huge spanner in the works. There's no confirmation on release date change at this point in time, and... From my point of view at work, we are still gearing up to be reopening within the next couple of weeks if it sticks the August the 12th date. But we are tentatively expecting an announcement within the next few days. 
it seems that we're we're in the kind of this readying position all the time now of uh, of, of it almost feels like having the the rug pulled out every now and then. And, and I was trying to explain to some to somebody just a, a few days ago because my other industry, the music industry, is kind of gearing up, and we've now been told that we can uh, return to venues on the first of August, and and then arena gigs again in October. And you've got the same issue, or we've got the same issue in in cinema and in music, is yeah. we can open, and arenas can open, but all the bands have cancelled their tours. Now, now one or two bands are going to go, yeah, I, I can pull it together very quickly because we've got a big enough following to, to fill an arena. But generally, generally, you know, you can open the, these venues. You've then got to find the product to put on. Which is okay on smaller venues, you know. In, in pubs, there's always a band ready and willing to play. But in 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 the arena gigs and the city halls, etc., with bands cancelling tours, you know, that's a lot of a, a lot of time and effort to try and find something to to throw in to do it. So it, it's again, you, the rug is being pulled out every time a, a decision comes along. And the same for films. You can open, but if there's not the product there to bring people yeah. back. Then it's it's a it's a, a loss of money for the cinema chains and and everyone else connected to it. So it's it's an odd one as to know where we are. Well, in America, industry analyst Doug Crutes has suggested that many cinemas may not even re- be reopening until way into 2021. In his words, uh, we've now extended that timeline out to at least mid 2021. The situation remains very fluid, and we do not rule out the possibility that the impact could last even longer. We now expect domestic theatres to be largely closed until mid-2021, in part because we don't think studios will be interested in releasing their largest movies into a capacity-constrained footprint. That completely ties into what you're saying, and with the fact that it's now speculated that Tenet could lose the studio a load of money if it's released within the next month. Yeah, no one wants to see that. No one wants to see the aspect of releasing a product and it not being received well because there's not a market, market out there. I mean, for music, I, my my thought is, and especially with with smaller venues, now a, a lot of bands, um, uh, and I know we're going off the film film side, but a lot of bands, you know, will will get a cut of the door. Now, if you can only have half the amount of people in, then that cut of the door is not going to happen. Yeah, and it's been suggested, and I absolutely endorse it, is that you know venues put on multiple bands uh, to try and get people in uh, and pay pay a reasonable fee for getting bands in. I think yeah. cinemas have got to have got to find some other way. It's to put on a, put on an event as opposed to just putting on a film. Now, you know, two yeah. or three films, putting on perhaps double features or something that's just going to drag people in and, and get used to the to the prospect of being sat in a cinema in this new environment. I don't know. I'm just just kind of spitballing ideas, but I think there's got to be an incentive from cinema owners with with limited amount of product to, to try and make make it work if they can if they can open. Interestingly, the Shanghai International Film Festival is still planned to run from July the 25th to August the 2nd. Well, I've not had my invite, have you? I've not got my invite. Uh, I'm not sure I'd be able to make the flight, to be honest with you. But, you know, it would have been nice. Uh, but yeah, it is interesting that China's putting so many restrictions in, but at the same time are willing to open up a huge international film festival. Yeah. Very yeah. curious time. On the positive side, with think, I mean, we've been talking about things going back into production. Uh, filming has begun on the Uncharted movie with Tom Holland. Wow, this has taken its time to get there. Um, it's gone through numerous 
directors. David O. Russell was connected, Sean Levy at one point, I believe. Uh, and for those who don't know, Uncharted is based on a, on a fantastic game series. Tom Holland was a curious casting choice, which was met with quite a lot of resistance from the fan base because he just doesn't seem right for it. But this is going to play as like a, an introduction. It's the origins of that character kind of film. The character in the games is in his 30s and... You know, he's, he's kind yeah. of a world-worn traveller. But there is a hint in the in the final game where we, where we meet him as a, as a young man, which I'm, I, I'm guessing they're taking that... That's what, that's, uh, that's what they're running with. As, ...as the foundation premise for the for the movie series. But it gained a good, good bit more traction when it landed in the lap of director Ruben Fleischer, who okay. has a, such a huge fan base with films like Zombieland and Double Tap and also Venom, which Venom... For me, not a great film, but you know, I don't, I don't blame him for that. So he, once he got it, a lot of the fans were like, "Well, you know what? We're willing to give it a shot." And now you've got names like Mark Wahlberg's in there, Antonio Banderas, um, Taiti Gabriel, uh, co-starring alongside. So now that filming started, we should hopefully start to get some more teasing of what to expect. It's actually started filming as we record this today in Germany, from what I believe. Yep. Apparently, once the shooting for this all finishes and it's all wrapped, the filming for Spider-Man 3 with Holland will kick off, possibly around February next year, all going well. He's had a hell of a career. Yeah, Spider-Man has basically thrown him into the limelight. I mean, once you get tagged onto a character like that, of course you're going to get picked up by everyone. But he's really riding it. And he's he's such a likeable actor as well. Yes, and that's what's going to work for him. And, and I, you know, big things are due for this kid. Uh, and I say because he's in, still in his early 20s. It's interesting watching him like on con- in conventions or any press things, and you see how excited he is to be working within this industry and working in the genre pictures that he's doing. Lends well for him being in a film. If he's excited about the property, then that's why he's so good in it, because he wants it to be fun. Yeah. You ever played the games, by the way? I played them, I played them originally, like the first ones, a few years ago. Uh, but never really got anywhere into them. But recently on the PlayStation 4, we got them as one of the monthly plus freebies. They are great games. And what makes them work? I mean, in all honesty, you know, the gameplay is not that unique or original. But it's, And it's that particular studio, the studio that brought in The Last of Us. They yeah. have a way of, of, of making, making movies out of games. I mean, they, they feel like a, a film. They're plotted like a movie. And the dialogue and the characterization is excellent. And that's why, that's why they've really stood out and, and, and been so well-received. It's safe. Not just, just, just gameplay and the storyline, but it's the, it's the characters. And they really embed their characters. Well worth playing if you've not had a go. Marvel News and the... Disney Plus shows have been pushed back to next year. Oh, I didn't know that. I was expecting I was expecting Falcon and Winter Soldier uh, this this autumn. They've confirmed that they're not ready. <laughs> I should be crying into my tea. That that's made people obviously turn around and say, "Well, what's worth sticking around on um, Disney Plus for?" Well, it's worth sticking around because there's still a huge amount of content on there, and they occasionally drop some surprises. But at the same time, there's been the another New Mutants trailer released. Uh, you know, and I think you said this <laughs> just before we came on air. With all the clips that we've got of New Mutants we can actually start to put together a fan flake version. They're just going to keep releasing a new trailer every couple of months, and then five years down the line, they'll turn around and say, but we did it as a serialised um, episodic thing. Didn't you get them? <laughs> <laughs> this is the only way that they're getting this film out to us. And um, Hawkeye, I believe there's been some news on there. Yes, we've got two directors 
uh, signed on to direct the series because I, it looks like the other shows are, are sticking with with one director throughout the run as opposed to uh, episodic directors that you normally find in, in episodic TV. Do you know who those directors are? I don't know. Funny enough, I've looked and I still don't know. Um, <laughs> Am- Amber Finilson and Katie Elwood uh, and Reese Thomas are the first group who've been hired. Now, I'm not familiar with any of their work uh, Finlwood and Elwood are collectively known as Bert and Bertie. They recently directed Troop Zero, of which I know nothing, which was for Amazon. And Thomas has shot the likes of uh, Comrade Detective uh, and John Mulaney. So uh, quite unknown. So it looks like they're going down the indie route like they did with Captain Marvel on this one. Which is, it, it's kind of the Marvel way, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, you know, a part of it is a, is a costing exercise. You know, you don't have to pay as much for a, a lesser known director so pick up some kind of up-and-coming indie whiz kid or whiz kids to, to shoot your movie uh, and because marvel have such control over their movies and not not in a controlling way not in a controlling way but they you know they, they control they control the ip on it unlike dc who are picking directors to to guide their films as opposed to uh, a producer um, i mean you just have to look at the russos who yeah. were handed by you know a captain america film delivered the best Captain America film and then basically got given the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, and that shows that they've got so much faith in, you know, TV directors, people who are known for like something completely different to what they're going to be delivering because they can bring a, a new vision. Yeah. We know with Hawkeye film, it's going to be Jeremy Renner um, passing the bow and arrow over to a younger archer named Kate Bishop. Yeah. There's still no, Lockdown on casting for Kate Bishop. Haley Steinfeld was in negotiations, but apparently they've fallen through. Yeah, she was a hot favourite. She was a fan favourite, and yeah, uh, it looked like at one point that she was she'd signed on the dotted line, but apparently it appears not. But with um, coming from the pen of Jonathan Nigler, who's acting as series showrunner, who gave us <laughs> the glorious Mad Men. Oh, I love Mad Men. I did a revisit on Mad Men recently, and it's uh, uh, it's not lost any of those qualities that made it such a a fantastic series. A series, inter- interestingly enough, where you didn't like the leading characters. It's going to be interesting to see what we get with this one. And, you know, I'm more excited for a Hawkeye series than I have been for The Falcon and Winter Soldier. Yeah, because Hawkeye is a bit of a, a, a blank slate compared to those characters. And if, if they are going down the fantastic run that Matt Fraction did with it, which it appears that's, that's where they are, then I, I yeah. think it's... Uh, I think they can go anywhere and do something really unique because because that if you've not read it, it's well worth a read, uh, and subsequently set the style now for for any other Hawkeye comic that's followed on since there. We could kind of segue from Mad Men to this because John Hamm has been cast as Fletch. I love the first Chevy Chase Fletch film. I think it's 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 not only hysterically funny; it's a good detective yarn. And, yeah. and it worked. He he worked really well. He he was basically Chevy Chase playing Fletch. They've tried to reboot this character so many times. Kevin Smith was attached, and with uh, with an origin story called Fletch One, which was to star Jason Lee. And I love Jason Lee. Um, I think I think he would have been a superb Fletch. Uh, and then Zach Braff was attached to it. There's been so many times they tried to reboot Fletch uh, because it is comedic, but it's not it's not a comedy. It's always a detective, and it's uh, for those who don't know Fletch. He's a reporter for a newspaper, an investigative journalist who, who has a penchant for disguises, in which if you ever see the, the Chevy Chase version, they were just Chevy yeah. Chase. It worked really, really well. So I'm excited <laughs> to see Fletch. I've only read one of the novels and quite enjoyed it, but I believe 
they are basing this on the second Fletch novel. Second book, Confess Fletch, which sees him embroiled in the middle of a string of multiple homicides and he is targeted as the prime suspect. Uh, John Hamm and Connie Travel are producing and Greg Mottola, who gave us Superbad, is directing. You know what? I think because you watch Mad Men and you've, you've seen John Hamm in that role, which was a was such a multidimensional character, that you do, you do forget that John Hamm is, is, is fantastic at comedy. I can really do, you know, can really do slapstick and can do silly, silly funny. You look at things like Bridesmaids, for instance. He's, he's, yeah. uh, he wouldn't have been my choice of Fletch, but now that he's announced, I totally get it. Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, which will be him going back to the 1970s San Fernando Valley, has been picked up by MGM. There's no confirmed name of what this film is going to be, but initially this was a focus film production. But the pandemic shutdown occurred before any movement was made, and so MGM is taking over after Focus have budget issues. The film sees multiple storylines played out in a Paul Thomas Anderson kind of way, with the main linking one centering on a child actor going through high school. No cast announced as of yet, but Paul Thomas Anderson's films all... I mean, we've spoken about Paul Thomas Anderson when we covered yeah, Boogie Nights. Yeah, in depth. Yeah, absolutely in depth. They always have a great mix of actors in there. And the interweaving of different stories is something that he's so skilled at that I'm interested to see him go back to the, like the 70s era again because he's definitely got a love for it. And, and talking of, of those sorts of author directors and singular voices, Richard Linklater's got a, a new project that he's bringing to the screen. Is this his um, Apollo 11 hybrid of live action and animation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he did that before. He did it in Waking Life and he did mm. it in the fantastic Scanner Darkly. Oh, my favourite dick on film. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll move on swiftly from that. Uh, Link later wrote the script, which tells the story of the first moon landing in the summer of 1969 from two interwoven perspectives. It both captures the astronauts in the mission control view of the triumphant moment and the lesser seen bottom-up perspective of what it's like to be an, ex an excited kid uh, living near NASA and watching most of it on television, like hundreds of millions around the world did at that time. It's ultimately both uh, an exacting recreation of this moment in history and a kid's fancy about being plucked from the average life in suburbia to secretly train for a covert mission to the moon. So it's very, very linked letter. Uh, apparently the, the live action stuff is done and now they're waiting on the animation. I'm always interested in anything that linked letter delivers. He's always a very interesting storyteller. Yeah, that's uh, Apollo 10 and a half and it's going to premiere on Netflix starring Jack Black uh, and Zachary Levi. Speaking of Netflix, the tra have you seen the trailer for the upcoming superhero film, Project Power? No, and I've not heard of this. Is Project Power based on an, an existing uh, uh, existing IP? No, it's a new IP. It's a superhero film. It's got similarities to... And I, I'm trying to place where I've seen this idea before. Because the story is that there's a drug that you can take and it gives you superpowers for five minutes when taken. It, it does echo a little bit of Limitless. Yeah, there's that, yeah that's possibly what I'm seeing the inspirations from and um, the, the basic story is that one man is trying to rescue his daughter from the sinister organization that's behind the drug you've got names like J jamie fox joseph gordon levitt who this like is the lot. second of this is the second of his three films out this year he's a really busy boy at the moment and it's set the uh, typical netflix they've just dropped the trailer because the film itself is coming out in little, little under three weeks august the 14th is the date for this and the trailer looks quite good and that's available to watch now yeah the trailer's available yeah so August 14th, we'll be looking for it. The directing team is Ariel Shulman and Henry Juice, who gave us Paranormal Activity 4, Never, and Viral. So they come from kind of a horror kind of background. 
And I think that lends well to doing a different kind of take on superheroes, which is, you know, New Mutants. But <laughs> and that's called Project Power. Project Power. So get that trailer checked. It's, um, yeah, it's definitely got star power in there. And it definitely looks like an intriguing concept. Well, in a little while, I'm going to give you my review for Old Guard, which is uh, launched on Netflix. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit in detail about how Netflix is, is really going out there and pulling in tons and tons of IP. And Netflix again, the SpongeBob movie that has been cancelled from cinematic release and going straight to video on demand in the US is looking to be a Netflix exclusive for the international market. There's no date set for the international, but the deal apparently means that Netflix won't have to match Paramount's initially planned early 2021 date and gives them more freedom to drop it at any time that they want. I'm not enamoured at all by SpongeBob, completely passed me by. I'm too old and too grumpy to care. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really a fan of it myself, but I know that it's got a lot of fans. So Yeah, huge. Uh, I mean, he's got a huge cult following, not just amongst kids. It's a great snap for Netflix. Um, one show that was set for a TV series prequel to a movie that's been scrapped is Sexy Beast. Oh, really? I didn't know they were looking at a TV series. You know, as soon as you said that, I just thought, oh, good. <laughs> yeah the project initially got a green light for straight to a 10 episode order but it's been axed before any shooting can like can take place there's no official reason given but the suggestions are that it's a cost-cutting exercise after the viacom and cbs merger and it was going to be like it was going to focus on the early criminal career of the main characters from sexy beast and i'm not really sure that we needed to see that i think it would have just been a generic heist yeah, it's just it's a, it's a perfect film that you don't need to know the characters before because everything's laid out to you on the canvas that is that movie. You yeah. know everything you need to know about those characters, the relationships. It's all there because that's what great storytelling and a great film will do for you. It does infuriate me. And, it, and it's, you know, there has been a couple of exceptions to this that you don't need to know the backstory of certain characters because we yeah. are we're told everything we need to know about them if we wanted to if we wanted to know more about them the writer would have written a book noah centineo who we all know from to all the boys i've loved before and charlie's angels yeah of course the, the name just slips off my tongue <laughs> uh, well he's joined the cast of black adam right black adam is the dc project based on the villain who was the main uh main uh, antagonist for Captain Marvel, or as most people call him now, Shazam. Noah's going to be playing Atom Smasher. Now, there's a character from the golden age of comics. Well, he, yeah, he's clearly not a DC version of Ant-Man because uh, there's no ants. But he can control his molecular structure to um, grow and shrink. So, okay, it's just an Ant-Man DC version. What's interesting about the Black Adam movie is that Black Adam is a villain. So we've got a villain central film with Rock the Dwayne Johnson playing Black Adam. And now they've cast his opponent, who's the good guy. But he's the secondary character. So it's a, it's a it's a flip side of your normal superhero origin films that we're going to be kind of rooting for the bad guy. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to go and say, well, look at Joker. Joker was a perfect example where you rooted for a villain and uh, it was a successful movie and a fantastic take on a character. The thing with Black Adam is he's not even a particular within, apart from the, the last sort of 10 years or so, we're not a particularly well-known villain amongst most of the, the DC stable. It's not like you did a, doing a Doctor Doom film. And I think it was a missed opportunity not to have him instantly fight Shazam because they, they are equally matched characters. I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't want to say this is going to be a lousy movie because I've not seen it, not read the script, know very little about it. 
I'm intrigued by it. I'm also slightly disappointed that we could have had a Shazam Black Adam movie, which would have been yeah. a stronger bet for me. It's in the safe hands of um, Jaume Collet Serra, who gave us uh, the 2016 film The Shallows with Blake Lively. Okay, that was, that was okay. However, this is also the same director who gave us Nonstop and House of Wax, so let's not get too excited. And they weren't okay. <laughs> Moving on, and we've spoken about A24 and their output previously that like you know that they, they gave us things like lighthouse they gave us the excellent midsummer last year and so their films are always interesting films have you seen any of the stuff around the green knight no i've heard little bits and pieces of it it's sort of spread around but i know very little about the actual movie itself we talked about this a few weeks ago didn't we yeah it's adapted from the poem of gawain and the green knight which i know uh, which is arthurian mythologies and the film will star Dev Patel, Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton, Ralph Innocent, Sean Harris, Kate Dickey, and a, a wealth of other people. Great. And it's directed by David Lowry. The, the film itself looks as intriguing as you expect from A24, and the trailer gives you nothing but makes you go, what am I watching? They've released a rather, in, well, they're releasing a rather interesting tie-in spin-off, a tabletop RPG in a very Dungeons & Dragons style. Well, that fits in very well into the sort of... It's not necessarily the fan base, but it definitely an interesting way of, uh, of getting interest in this product. It's got me interested. I mean, just the description of, like, the, the quest itself. From the hallowed halls of Camelot to the mysterious wilds of the fabled Green Chapel, embark on a mythical journey across Arthurian lands in search of the Green Knight. I'm in. You're sold, aren't you? I can tell already. <laughs> I am sold and I am purchasing this. But it's a very interesting tie-in because normally you get like, you know, TV spin-offs or you get, you know, small little webisodes ties in. It's very rare that you actually get an adaptation to game. If A24 want to do this with any more of their films, I would love to do a really messed up conspiracy kind of midsummer RPG. In fact, I'm probably going to write that myself. But this is, this is a purchase as soon as it comes out for me. Uh, whether I can get a group of people around the table to play it is another matter. Shall we round off the news? Yeah, let's round off. Shall we, ra- shall we round it off with a final mention from uh, June director Villeneuve has weighed in on his thoughts about films needing cinema screens, something that Nolan has been so passionate about as you know, he, he wants to keep cinemas going and he's determined that cinema is the way to watch his films. Well, recently on Roger Deakinson's podcast... Uh, Villeneuve was on there and asked how does he feel about, you know, whether people watch his films on the big screen or the small screen, and apparently he doesn't care. Oh, really? I've got a long quote by him which sums it all up. Roger made jokes about my iPhone. For people who don't know, Roger was traumatised that I had the thin red line from Terence Malick on my iPhone, and Roger thought it was horrific. Me? I thought it was cool because I could take the movie with me. It's not the same, but the thing is, I want to fight for the big screen, but a lot of my own cinematic experiences have actually been on television. I discovered 2001 A Space Odyssey on television, and I later realised that I discovered Blade Runner on television. I discovered a lot of movies that were massive influences on television, or, like most Igmar Bergman films, I discovered on VHS. And still, through these movies, they had massive impact. All that debate on the size of the screen, because I'm a filmmaker and I just love films. I love the experience of being in a cinema with an audience, but I think it feels more important that people see them. If in the future people are going to watch more movies on television, that's fine. The films that I remember from my childhood are from watching them on TV and not the cinema experience. And I think that's quite an interesting um, take on it. Well, to be honest, uh, most of the classic films I've ever seen, I've seen at home. Yeah. 
I've seen on TV and then I've seen them on, on VHS and then on DVD and on Blu-ray and now on streaming services, you know, there are a few which have enabled me to go back and see uh, Citizen Kane. I managed to see it at the cinema. I've never seen the early Bond films up until Live and Let Die, They're only on television. I've never yeah. saw them in the cinema. I'm the same as Ed. 2001 Space Odyssey is one of my most treasured films of all time. And I experienced that on TV. It was only last year when it got a reissue at the cinema that I finally got to see it on the big screen. Yes, I mean, he, he acknowledges that the cinema experience is something different. And, you know, it is amazing. But it's not critical to be influenced, inspired or engaged with a film, which I, I can kind of agree with. Um, this is quite a strange thing to say when uh, I actually work within the cinema industry. I'm, I'm going to disagree slightly on it. And I, and I get everything that, that, it, that you said and he said. What I do think that you get with the cinema experience and a positive cinema experience is you get more than just the memory of the film. I can't, for the life of me, tell you when I watched uh, James Bond on TV for the very first time, but I can tell you of the experience of seeing it with an audience and getting that experience as, of being part of it. For good or for bad, there are films which I've seen with a lousy audience and I've not enjoyed the movie because of that. And then, yeah. then readdress that later. But there are films that have, have made for it. Seeing a comedy with an audience is, an, is a unique experience but when everybody laughs and everyone is into it. And, and same with a good horror movie, that audience participation when people scream and people get uh, anxious and jump and all jump together at the same time feeds into that. Seeing Jaws in yeah. the cinema uh, and seeing the point where the, the head bobs up as, as, a, as a shared experience in a, in a movie theater is, is incredible. But, you know, my, my love of a film can, can also be changed by seeing it with a lousy audience. Nothing worse than going to see a film being sat next to somebody who completely hates the film that you love because you're yeah. aware that they, they hate it. Yeah, I can get that. Um, on, on a discussion around this online last week, someone commented that, yeah, the reason why they don't like the cinema experience is people just playing with the mobile phones, talking or eating noisily. So I just replied to like, yeah, I hate it when the wife does that, when I put something on on DVD as well. Boom, boom. Thank you very much. And Andy, that's the news. So over the last few weeks, while we've been in a, a lockdown situation, Andy has been looking at movies that for some reason none of us can clearly explain is he's missed either first time around or at some point during his life. And we picked up some goodies. The Town, Last of the Mohicans. Last week we did. What did we do last week, Andy? Wow, I've completely forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> That's how many films Andy's watched over the last few weeks that he can't recall what we watched. What he only watched last week. So anyway, I've been choosing films for Andy to watch. Uh, and oh, it was this, Hugo. It was, it was Hugo, Hugo of course it was. It was only a week ago, Andy. You were there, I remember. <laughs> uh, so this week I've chosen for Andy to watch is In The Loop, which is a 2009 uh, British satirical black comedy uh, directed by Armando Iannucci. It's a spin-off from his BBC TV series, which you, if you've never watched, you must. It is available on Netflix called The Thick of It. Uh, and in this film in particular, it... It really satirizes Anglo-American politics, and in particular, the invasion of Iraq. Stars uh, Peter Capaldi, who is the most sweariest character you will ever see on television and in film. Tom Hollander, Gina McKee, Chris Addison, uh, David Ratch, and the late, great James Gandolfini. So, Andy, I believe you enjoyed this so much so, 
that you went and watched The Thick of It. Yep, as soon as I finished watching this, and I've never watched The Thick of It, I'd heard so many good things about it, but as soon as I finished watching this film, I straight away went on to season one, episode one of The Thick of It, and continued chuckling away. Uh, with this, within the loop, within the first about 15 minutes, you get to Capaldi, and I'm sorry, but uh, we have to use some offensive language at this point in time. So when if you're listening to this with, with a child in the car, uh, now would be a good time to to look out the window and, go, and say something like, ooh, cows, ice cream van. Because it was his first throw out of fuckity bye, just set me off. I was in hysterics. His manners of like delivery of his insults, his attacks, his uh, pull downs of people. I can understand why so many people love this character. He is such a, a, a nasty but witty character. He has some of the best put-downs you've ever, ever heard, isn't there? Ever known to man. <laughs> they are marvellous. He is absolutely brilliant. I, love, I mean, when I'm watching um, the episodes of The Thick of It, and you get moments where it's like, uh, can you arrange a meeting with uh, such and such and such and such and such and such? I just want someone to shout at. I just like, oh, I love this character. But in, in, the, in the loop, with the moving over to America and getting involved in American politics, giving a whole new aspect to it, it's interesting watching him try to bring that antagonism to an American society. And of course, this worked, I wouldn't say worked as a, as a backdoor pilot, but it was definitely an influence for uh, Armando Anucci's Veep, which, which is a very, yeah. very similar series, which I think one of the characters spun off into that. Yep, yeah, uh, there's a couple of cast members from the American side of it who spun off into it. And yeah, what, uh, there's definitely one character. I've read somewhere that there's one character which is actually the same character. It, you know, Veep, Veep is the perfect comparison. I mean, I, I really enjoyed Veep, so I don't know why I'd never seen In the Loop or The Thick of It when they were clearly the inspiration for the series. Yeah, I think I think In the Thick of It is is so British in a way that I, I never I never embraced Veep as much as In the Thick of It because I, I thought. I thought in the thick of it was was not only fantastically satirical, but it was it was quite hard hitting. There was always an an underlying bite to it that V for me didn't ha happen with. Um, but what I enjoyed about it was was the fact that the the way they created the show and the the, the way they wrote it. So they basically Jesse Armstrong, who was uh, Amanda Anucci's uh, co writer on it. Basically, they came up with a storyline, and the three of them would go away and do the storyline, send it to him. He'd okay with the initial draft, and then they sort of map it out with the actors and give the actors room to to grow into it. It wasn't an a typical written written episode where there was a script in place. It's um, it, on in the loop. There was encouragement for them all to improvise around the scenes on set, and there's there's a story about how Gandolfini got so into improvising his character, getting angrier and angrier that Capaldi actually broke character because he was scared that Gandolfini was actually going to punch him. <laughs> that whole aspect of improvisation, it, it meant that the initial cut of this film apparently was 4.5 hours long. And I feel that I need that film in my life because <laughs> by the end of this film, which I was engrossed with throughout and chuckling almost constantly at the antics going on because it's bitingly satirical and very snappily paced. Um, it reminded me a lot of a, a, a kind of British sorking because there's so much dialogue going on with so much information packed into the dialogue that you need to watch it again and again to completely explore all the aspects of it. But at the end of it, I wanted more. And I've, I've noticed that in the thick of it does exactly the same thing, that over the credits, it's got other bits and pieces going on. And it's like little teasers, like, oh, this is what we could have had. It's like, 
but I want them. I want more from this. This was an amazing experience, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. If you if you've not seen the series, I still think you can watch this film in sort of isolation. And it, well, you it can because. Does... You can, because I'd never seen the series, and I watched this, and this got me to want to watch the series. So it worked beautifully to introduce me to what I was missing. And it also ties in to my theory of the TV series brought to the big screen, in which British TV sitcoms in particular, whenever they did a, a big screen outing, they would always take their characters on holiday and out of the country. And this <laughs> does exactly that. They take them to yep. the States for the majority of the film. It's that fish out of water aspect. It's like, okay, you might you might have been the man swinging his big balls over there, but you're in our playground now. I did read an interesting story that um, Iannucci had actually managed to, prior to filming, gain access to the US Department of State. Oh, really? He flashed a simple photo ID to a security guard and said, BBC, I'm here for the 12.30. And they just let him in. And he spent <laughs> a few hours walking around taking pictures for his set designers. And, you know, that's a major security flaw. But it's why the set design looks so authentic as well. It looks perfectly like a US embassy. If you've not seen any... And I'm guessing you have, Andy, seen any of uh, Armando Anucci's other works. I can highly recommend, because I, I think it's it's fantastic and plays into all of his strengths, uh, The Death of Stalin, which came out in, in 2017, which is not only incredibly funny, but also amazingly horrific in a way that you, do, you wouldn't think those two elements would go together in one film. I, I've not seen his personal history of David Copperfield yet. As I said, uh, Veep. I, I, I liked, um, and I, maybe I should get back into it, I did try his uh, Avenue 5, which was that, that comedy series set in uh, set in space, which had yeah. elements that I liked, but it, it, it just didn't quite land for me. But I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, right back from uh, the day-to-day, -day, uh, and knowing me, knowing you with Alan Partridge. I, I, he's a fantastic yeah. writer, and it's such a unique voice. So that, thank you for recommending In The Loop, because you've given me um, the thick of it to watch. It's my pleasure. And it's my pleasure now to announce your film for next week. Which is... It's, it's, it's a lot different than In The Loop, and that's Rashomon. Okay, I, I don't, don't think there's going to be a lot of laugh-out-loud moments on that one, is no, there? No, I mean, it's hugely influential. Uh, it, it's a classic. It's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a heavy-going film, but I am really intrigued. I did this as part of my film studies, so I'm really intrigued to know what your take is on, on Rashomon. Well, I think it's about time I have something more heavy-going, because uh, there's been a lot of light entertainment. Well, yeah, I, I, kind of balancing it out for you, in all, in all honesty. Uh, there were the films on your list that I thought, you know, could go to, but I thought Rashomon, it really sort of it sort of breaks up what, what we've been doing. Okay, so as you know, we've had the inability to go into a cinema and review a film. However, what we have been doing is a, a deep dive and taking one film every week and doing a, a deep dive and, a, and therefore sometimes a deep dive into, into the genre around it. We've covered things like... Airplane. Airplane was last week. We've done Monty Python. We did indeed. We've done Lost Boys. But this week, we've gone back to my favourite era of filmmaking. For, for me, the 1970s were groundbreaking. You can say everything you like yes. about the 60s, because they built into that, especially the latter half of the 60s. But the 1970s were where the director was king, and the director could open a movie more than... Well, as much as a star. And one of those directors that really is the epitome of, of those 1970s directors is Robert Altman. And his film, MASH, would be in my all-time top 20. 
A United States Army field hospital somewhere near the front lines. Check this place out. See what the nurses are like. That one, the sultry bitch with the fire in her eyes. I think you will find these accommodating. They're quite dry. Don't you use olives? We do have to make certain concessions to the war. We're three miles from the front line. This is the story of two indispensable military surgeons. They had the army over a barrel. But did they take advantage of it? Yes. MASH, a motion picture that raises some important moral questions. And then it drops them. I wonder how a degenerated person like that could have reached a position of responsibility in the Army Medical Corps. He was drafted. I love this film. Uh, yeah. I love it because I was a, a, a huge fan of the TV series, which we mentioned last week. But MASH, the 1970s, American black comedy, war film, for want of a better term, based on Richard Hooker's 1968 novel, MASH, a novel about army doctors, was a massive film for 20th Century Fox. The film depicts a unit of medical personnel stationed at a mobile army surgical hospital, for those who never knew what MASH meant, during the Korean War. It starred very young Donald Sutherland, Tom Skerritt, Elliot Gould, uh, Sally Kellerman, Robert Duvall, uh, the late great René Aubergenis, who died recently, Roger Berghoff, who was the only character uh, and actor to continue into the into the series, uh, Roger Bowen, Michael Murphy, and it, it, it played into all the elements that we now know the strengths of an Altman film. Ensemble playing, uh, vignettes more so than a, than a script, uh, um, lots of improvisation, and a film held together really by a thread of, of imagination rather than, than, than a narrative. So looking back on, on MASH, Andy, were, were you ever a fan of it? Did, did it? Does it mean as much to you as it did to me? I'm a fan of the film MASH, but I became a fan of the film MASH through my love of the series. Yeah, me too. So I was introduced to it from the series. And initially, when I first watched the film, it was a bit jarring to have the same characters played differently by different people with the exception of um, Gary Berghoff as Radar, who's the one who carried over. And so initially I thought, oh, it's okay, but I don't get it. But then I went back to it a couple of years later and got a lot more from it. I, and I totally have to agree with you on that. And, and it is simply because, you know, 11 seasons of a TV series, you're keyed into those people in the roles. So it was jarring to be introduced to it in a different way. But taking it as its own film... It's a it's a great satire. I mean, it was made as an allegory to the Vietnam War because the Vietnam War was still going on when the film was made. And apparently Altman didn't want it to actually reference what war it was in because he wanted it to be a clear allegory to Vietnam. But the studio forced them to put the scroll at the beginning saying, and then there was Korea as an introduction. And then because they'd been forced to do that, he then used the... Um, little tannoy announcements every now and then would reference something to do with Korea. But up until that point, he wanted it to just be set within an unspecified war. But it, it's the cast are great. I mean, Donald Sutherland is always great in anything he does. And he is always playing basically the same character. And it was one of those things where you, you saw, saw him team up with Elliot Gould. Yeah. And, and these were the epitome of, of 70s stars. You know, they, they were very everyman leading actors. Uh, to some extent, you know, you, you compare um, an Elliot Gould and a Donald Sutherland to today's people like a Ryan Reynolds or a Tom Cruise. They are very, very, very different of what you expect to be a leading man and a star. Going back and re-watching 
the film this week, which I've got as part of um, the beautiful box set of the TV series and the film altogether. Oh, what a great box set. Now, is this a film that I could recommend to someone for the first time? Now, I'd, I'd be hesitant. And the reasons for that is because when you look at it in this environment today, the main characters that you're supposed to be following and like embracing are not the likable, lovable rogues that people like me and you can see because we've grown with this and we've seen it. We can fit it in the times. But they're actually quite misogynistic and bullying. The, the film itself, in a, for a modern audience, has that problematic aspect of being so of its times, but not as of its time as its books. Because one of the characters in the film, uh, Spearchucker Jones, was called that for very racist reasons in the books. But in this, it's because he used to throw javelin for the um, sports teams that yeah. he played for. I've read the books. I, I've read Hooker's original novel. I, I, it, it, it is problematic in the extent that it was written in, in its time. I disagree that Altman described it as being a, a terrible and somewhat racist book. Yes, it, it, mentioning what you've just mentioned. I don't yeah. think it's a terrible book. I think it, it sets the scene. There's a lot of the elements are used there. Ring Lardner Jr., who wrote the screenplay, basically wrote the screenplay as a, as a kind of a springboard for what Altman did with it. You know, uh, scenes were improvised. Altman changed the running order of, of some of the major sequences. There are subplots that were in that were filmed that got dropped. It, it really is a, a Robert Altman gig. And, and what I mean by that is it's vignettes as opposed to a, a self-satisfying story. It starts, it goes off, it, yeah. it meanders around different subplots and then comes back together at the ending for the for the great football uh, scene. That that football scene is a great payoff, particularly for the character of Hot Lips. Yes. Who, when she's introduced, she's very stern and militaristic and like she, she wants everyone, yeah, everyone should be serious and everyone, we're in the military, da 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 But then on that scene, she becomes a giddy cheerleader and provides one of the biggest belly laughs of the film when um, the... She like the the pistol gets fired and she screams, "Oh my god, they've shot him!" <laughs> it's a great way to just like resolve her character, and make it make you realise that okay, she's kind of being picked on for being so stern in the madness of war, but then she embraces the madness of war, and that's what the whole film is, and that's what the whole story is. It's the insanity of war and how it affects the everyday man. It is it's a laugh out loud, loud funny film that takes place in a lot of time where the characters are knee-deep in, in blood and gore of, of wounded soldiers. It never forgets what it's talking about. It never forgets that, that it's a war, and I use the term very lightly, a war movie, and, and has something interesting to say a, about that. But but what Altman brings to it are irreverent characters in a, in a ridiculous situation and never loses sight of that. There was yeah. a rumour going around for years that during principal photography, both Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould allegedly spent a third of their time trying to get Altman fired because they just couldn't understand the way he was working. Even though this has been disputed, apparently Gould sent a letter of apology to Altman and they worked together several more times in the fantastic Long Goodbye, for instance, which is a, a, an absolute yeah. favourite of mine. But it's, it's, uh, it's a great film and it's the sort of film that would never get made now. And it's the same film, sort of film that a lot of the seventies films that that were huge box office hits. And this was, this was it was a massive, massive. It was the third highest grossing film released in nineteen seventy, behind Love Story and Airport. But this sort of filmmaking is is now a thing of the past. It's a real time capsule to innovative director led led movie making, which would now, if it was to be made, would end up on Netflix. In amongst all the the comical portrayals, the farce, the ridiculous aspects of it. You've got scenes like the Last Supper scene, which 
you know, there's there's the I mean, even though again it's a controversial element to add into a story for this day and age, uh, but you've got the character who wants to kill himself because he he doubts his own sexuality, and so they give him a Last Supper, and it they they see to and frame it exactly like the famous painting of the Last Supper. Yes, a absolutely beautiful shot beautifully set up and then you've got that theme tune that iconic theme tune suicide is painless is such such an amazing amazingly melancholic tune it's it's interesting that when they did the tv series they took the the theme and and, and made it sitcom-y and, and and worked away from the suicide is painless aspect of it it's a great film is it would i recommend someone to watch this who hasn't seen the series probably not i think that in this day and age you need the series to get you to adjust lighter to those characters before going in and dealing with some of the problematic aspects that the film will raise in this day and age. And then you can appreciate the film more. I think if, for me, if you want to see, you want to see a great adult comedy that's not afraid to tackle bigger issues, the sort of, sort of movie making that doesn't get, get made anymore, then I would highly recommend MASH as being a time capsule to a period of filmmaking which is long gone, yeah. but delivered some of the greatest films that we've ever had in a time when we didn't have to look forward to the box office summer hit. You know, for everything I love about Marvel movies, superhero movies, you know, grand piece of theatre filmmaking... This is these, these are actual movie movies where they said something and they weren't afraid to take a risk at a, at a studio's behest. I can't imagine a studio turning around now and saying, let's make a comedy set during Iraq that's laugh out loud funny and has something critical to say about war. I, I just I just don't see it with characters behaving the way these characters irreverently yeah. behaved. But it's a fantastic film. It deserves to be well recognized it deserves to be in the um, afi's top 100 films uh, and top top um, 100 comedies of all time because uh, at its heart it's still a comedy it might be a difficult yeah. comedy but it's it's up there with with movies from that period like the graduate which are are difficult comedies absolutely adore it it would be in my all-time top 50 as being one of the, the best movies ever made the tv series came about because all the plans for the second film kept stalling right i didn't realize that they were they were intending to make a sequel and they just could never get it off the ground so that ended up morphing into being the basis for the tv series and they used the same sets because the back lot which they'd set up all the camp on was still set up it was the 20th century fox uh, back lot it's not, yeah. it's not Korea, folks. It's actually Southern California. Do you know why it looked so authentic? Why is that? Before they started filming Marsh, there'd been huge floods around the area, which had basically like ruined yeah, all the location and turned the ground to like arid kind of mud once it dried out. And that was perfect for setting for Korea. Fantastic. I mean, it's uh, it, let's not take anything away from the TV series. The TV series is, is phenomenal. And again groundbreaking the sort of thing that wouldn't have had a right to exist when it came out in the 70s yeah. because it was it was uh, again dealing with some very very uh, difficult uh difficult subjects in a in a sitcom situation we we mentioned this last week it does use it does use elements uh, of uh, of satire in them it makes the characters more likable than the, than their movie counterparts uh, and it's very hard if you've seen the series first, as, as Andy, you said at the, the top end of this, 
not to not to hear Alan Alder playing those. But they are they are cousins as opposed yeah. to being nothing. Neither one takes away anything from the other. You know, Mash as a film is a, is a film in its own right, and the series is is a. Is in its own right as well. Both were excellent. Both are still excellent. Yeah. So, as I said, we've not been sat in a movie theater watching movies. That's not to say there's not been nothing to see. I mean, you reviewed uh, Scoob a few weeks ago. Um, yeah. We've had uh, the Trolls movie doing exceptionally well. There have been movies being made, and of course, a lot of those movies now are going to Netflix. Netflix now are one of the highest producers of movies in the world. And when you've got a film like the film we're about to talk about, Old Guard, hitting on a Friday night and then being see, seen by 75 million households in a matter of uh, a matter of a few weeks, it's incredible. It, it works in a way that cinema just can't do. I think Netflix are getting bolder and bolder with, uh, with the films that they make. But they are relying a lot on a certain kind of IP, which is the, the, the genre IP, um, and are tapping into, after their initial, uh, initial relationship with Marvel, which didn't go as well, ultimately, as, as anyone had hoped. They are now tapping into IP from other comic groups and, and lesser-known IP. Um, and the film The Old Guard, which was released a couple of weeks ago, is based on a... And, and I hate this term when people go, it was based on a graphic novel. No, it was based on a comic series, let's be honest. Yes. Uh, Old, Guard is, uh, Old Guard is based on a series developed by Greg Rooker, who's a fantastic writer, who's had several of his works turned to the big screen, uh, Whiteout, uh, recently Stumptown, which is running at the moment, which is uh, a great read if you ever get a chance to read it. It's about a character called Andy, led by Shalise Theron, who leads a squad of elite mercenaries taking on dangerous missions all over the world. These mercenaries also turn out to be immortals who fought in numerous conflicts throughout the centuries. At the beginning of this film, their latest job goes bad and the team suspects someone is onto their secret. You've not had a chance to see this yet, have you, Andy? I've not, no. It's, uh, I'm, I'm too obsessed with MASH and um, In The Loop and The Thick Of It at the moment, so... It's an enjoyable movie, I, and I did enjoyable. It's actually written by Greg Rooker, which is um, excellent to say that you know someone who's created the series now gets to write the screenplay for it. What I did like about it is, and it has a, it has a lot of references to almost one of our very first shows, which was Highlander. Yeah. It has it has a lot of elements similar. Immortals who, who who live forever. There are flashbacks in it into into previous time periods. What it kind of lacks is the is the big sweeping boldness uh, and 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 downright over the top operatic style that Highlander had, and and goes for a much more kind of gritty take on it, and almost a a, a much more realistic take than, than Highlander did. Shalise Theron is fantastic all the way through, not only proving herself to to be a great leading lady, but a great leading lady in an in an action movie. She's really sort of moved up a gear, and I think that. Thanks to uh, Fury Road and her turn as Furosa in that, uh, and has has been able to walk into that that thin line, which is still, you know, female action leads are aren't numerous. I mean, yeah, for every John Wick, you know, we 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 don't get that many Atomic Blondes. This is a, this is a great movie, but what it what it kind of proves to me is, uh, we were talking this before we we came on air, is that Netflix really know what their market is. And who yeah. they are appealing to right now, because they are taking IP right, left, and centre. Because they're, they're no longer touching Marvel, 
they are raiding everything from Umbrella Academy to Cursed, which opened this week, which you've been watching. You're going to talk about as your your neat thing. Yeah. Uh, you've got the Miller World properties that they bought a couple of years back that they've been developing a few films and the Jupiter's Legacy TV series, which is in production. Yeah. They brought us Lemony, Lemony Snicket. They snapped up that one and gave us the full run of the whole story. There's been Lost in Space recently, uh, Sabrina. They even picked up Lucifer, which got cancelled by a network, and Netflix went, we'll have it. Uh, Dark Crystal, throwing themselves back to like the great like, film of the 80s and giving us a, a genuinely amazing prequel. Uh, v Wars, the absolutely excellent lock and key. Yeah, which is one of my favourite books. They are snapping up genre material, and even anime. They've, they've tackled properties such as Castlevania, Ultraman, Devilman, and we've got an upcoming Transformers series from them. Let's not forget the Chris Hemsworth film, Extraction, again, based on uh, uh, based on a comic book. They really do know their audience. They know that they, yeah. they, they are very, very canny on picking up these these existing properties and make them into, into big movies. There's also The Last Days of American Crime by uh, the Rick Remder uh, series which ran on image so they've, they've been very canny and, and looking out for lesser known titles which aren't going to cost them a fortune compared to a daredevil or a defenders or a luke cage punisher etc yep and breathing life into them and giving them a, a, a and giving them a slot as genre fans it's great because not all of them manage to hit the mark but the majority of these at least have enough to entice you and keep you engaged to a degree and that's not to like throw away from their own original content of like other things. I mean, you know, that the well known well known for like we've already mentioned the Irishman. You've also had things like Marriage Story, you know, that they still adapt to the quality stuff, they still target the quality stuff. Yeah. But when it comes to recognized properties, they are very, very smart with what they're grabbing. Because they're grabbing the things that are generally thought of to be blockbuster kind of explosions and action kind of event films and event series and the fact that, that when it lands on a friday or a saturday you know you can't argue with 75 million households watching it that's probably more bums on seats than it would have got this film if it had ended up in the cinema and it has a as a leading a leading actor that people are familiar with it's got a, a good genre log line that that draws you in and you know they're pulling in interesting directors and and this is they've given this over to gina prince uh blythewood who's who did the fantastic love and basketball who is a as an indie director uh, and being the first african-american female to direct a comic book movie so they really are going to town and, and and being able to place uh interesting directors with interesting projects with interesting ip that outside of the the genre geek circle you probably wouldn't have been aware of yeah at netflix who'd have thought when blockbuster turned them down and went ha no one wants streaming all those years ago. <laughs> they they yes. would have grown to what they are today. Unbelievable. Anyway, so that's that's Old Guard. Well worth seeing out on Netflix and watching any time that you like. So that's about wraps it up for this episode. Um, thanks for joining us. If you've been a fan of the show, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe. We are really pushing at the moment to get our, our listing figures up. We're still a little show in a massive, massive pond, but we want you to come and swim with us without the fear of a shark. Uh, so, Andy, uh, before we go, as you know, we always look at what has been your uh, neat thing. What have you been watching? What games have you been playing? What have you eaten? What is the thing that stood out for you over the last week? Well, we're back onto Netflix. Oh, really? I thought we'd just put that one to bed. 
I think we need to be sponsored by Netflix at this rate because we talk about them quite frequently. But um, Cursed landed on Netflix this week. Uh, it's based on Arthurian legends, and I'm a huge fan of Arthurian legend. I love any adaptations for good or for bad. I love to explore them. So obviously, as soon as this one popped up, I was like, yep, I mean, gave it a watch. I'm three episodes in, and I'm absolutely loving it. It's adapted from the upcoming illustrated novel by Frank Miller and Tom Wheeler. I recognise that name. Young Frank Miller. Frank Miller, yeah, I think he's done he's done some things in the past. Uh, something about a city of sin. Um, <laughs> the, he, he also reinvented uh, that that bloke who dresses as a bat. He did indeed. Um, yeah, a well established name uh, for from genre and from comic books. The story of Cursed follows Nimue. Now, for those who don't know Arthurian legend, Nimue is the Lady of the Lake. That's She's right, the yeah. one who who throws the sword out and goes, "Oh, I have it." Well, this is her, played by Catherine Langford, origin story. She's destined to become the Lady of the Lake, and she's a fae. She's selected by the spirits to be the chosen summoner for her tribe of fae, but she doesn't want that destiny. She wants to turn away from it. But destiny being the fickle thing that it is, and with the land itself cursed at the moment, raining blood, Merlin apparently lost his powers and unable to rectify things, and a group of religious fanatics called the Red Paladins, hunting and slaying all heretics, she finds herself on a quest to return a mystic sword to Merlin, who, you know, is not the Merlin that we know from many other adaptations. This is a great take on Merlin. He's a drunken has-been. Is it, does it have that sort of Frank Miller-ness about it? You know, is it, is it super violent? A lot of Frank Miller stuff is. I'm thinking of stuff like the 300 uh, and Sin City in particular. It's very, very Frank Miller in the storytelling aspects. Uh, there is some brutal bloodiness in there. There's, uh, you know, in the opening episode, she dispatches with a load of wolves that are chasing her down in quite a gruesome way. It's got intrigue, it's got mystery, but it's got such well-rounded characters. Each of the characters in there, straight away, you you kind of get their basis and you you you're caught up in the tale. Like this representation of Merlin for me ranks alongside the representation that we saw in the great film Excalibur. Oh, the Nicole Williams portrayal. Yeah, it's it's such a unique take on the character that straight away I'm I'm wanting to follow this character further. He's not the Merlin that we know of, like oh magic and staffs and wizardry. Ooh, he's a very broken man who's trying his best to fix the land that Uther Pendragon has ruined through his actions. Excellent. Well, I uh, I'd read one withering review, but that was based on the fact that it was a female take on the Arthurian legend and. Heaven forbid that there's a female take on the Arthurian legend. I mean, it's not like the Lady of the Lake was ever female. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. You've got to accept that this is the origin story of the Lady of the Lake. So, obviously, it's going to be a lead female character because we need to understand how she became what she became. Season one is all there on Netflix. Well worth a check out if you love Arthurian legend. And the cast are great. So, for me, one of the things that I've been doing during lockdown is, is very little. <laughs> I've been trying, trying to keep myself busy, and you know? now I've set out to. I uh, did the writer screenplay in three weeks, which has now taken me six. Uh, but I have been playing, and I wouldn't have done this normally because by the time I get to an end of a game, I kind of want to move on to the next one. And I, but I've been revisiting a, a, a few old games. I replayed The Last of Us in in lieu of playing The Last of Us Part Two, which I've still not got yet. So if anybody's listening wants to send me a copy, please do. Uh, just 
Uh, you can contact us on Twitter and I'll tell you my address. But I, I did play Days Gone and I talked about this as being my, my neat thing whoa, way back at the beginning of the year. I uh, finally finished it and uh, enjoyed it. I uh, had, had dismal reviews when it came out. It was much improved by uh, by the time I ended up playing it. But I kind of missed it when it was gone. It was an open world game. Uh, you're, set, you're a biker set in a um, post-infected, uh, which is just like now, I suppose, a post-infected uh, Oregon. And uh, you're playing sort of, um, it's, it's, you can see its inspiration. It's the uh, biker character out of The Walking Dead. It's yeah. uh, the, last, uh, the Last of Us. It's Red Dead Redemption. It's uh, I Am Legend. But you know what? It was a B-movie, and I thoroughly enjoy a good B-movie. Got to the end of the game, thought, you know, what more can I do? And then I was told to go and play the survival mode, uh, which apparently <laughs> uh, was a DLC, which I didn't know. Uh, so you've got a new options for campaigns. It's a tougher enemies. There's no fast travel. Uh, there's no fast travel. Disabled uh, HUD by default. It's a much more gritty, heart pounding and in your chest variation on the game. Even though I I now know kind of the layout of, of the world that I'm in, boy, it's harder. And thoroughly enjoying getting into a game that I don't really want to leave behind once it's done. Uh, and that to me is is what makes a good game that you that you want to play again and play in a different mode. So my neat thing for this week is Days Gone, which if you go back to previous episodes was a neat <laughs> thing then, but Days Gone in survival mode. I feel like a survivor. Replaying through a game that you completed on a survival mode is a whole new experience. I mean, uh, The Last of Us had survivor mode that you could you unlocked once you completed it if you had the DLC. And that is the same that it really throws you into a whole new way of playing the game. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait to play it. That's the thing. I mean, after after this, I'll try and grab an hour. I keep saying I'll grab an hour, and then three hours later, where's my day gone? <laughs> That's when you know that a game's a game's really good when you only intend to spend a short amount of time, but then oh, where where'd that clock go? But it's it, uh, to me, this is despite all the criticism of the game. Yeah, it's a B movie. It's a B movie version of The Last of Us. This is the way to play it. This is the, the true intention of the game. It's hard. It's gritty. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Totally enjoying it. So Fantastic. That's it for this week. We'll be back. Hopefully next week, won't we, Andy? Hopefully, unless uh, I am actually back to work. <laughs> uh, do you know anything right now? Is anything being given over? Or are you... Um... If, if, Tenet, if Tenet doesn't get shifted, then I will be going in at one day this week. And then we'll probably be starting next week on the run-up to being able to open in time for the film. If it does shift, that'll all change. So it's all up in the air again. Well, best of luck with it. We're all waiting. You know, there's, there yep. is a, an eager party out there waiting to um, waiting to step into a cinema. I went to my first cafe in the first time in ages, and it was like a religious experience. <laughs> I, I got quite giddy about the fact that I uh, I, I was in a, in a cafe. So that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. And as ever, watch out for your goodies, Hawkeye. That man is a sex maniac. <laughs> <laughs>